This week on the Back Table Podcast. That's very true because when you are with them by the time you're doing the presentation, you actually, when these patients keep coming back, you develop a wonderful relationship with them. Mm-hmm. So we've actually had a lot of discussion with these patients about future procedures, tips and everything while we're actually doing the procedure. So, so that has helped us get, get them primed for a possible procedure in the future. Uh, obviously, if we decide that TIPS is needed, we will contact the hepatologist. Uh, some of these patients, uh, depending on how they are, uh, our hepatologists work very closely with the transplant service. So they will then get plugged in into a transplant evaluation. If they've not already been doing that, get to us a, a clinic for the evaluation and go from there. Welcome to the Backtable podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans. Our discussion today will be about paras or paracentesis. Before we get to that, I wanted to plug our new website. For those interested, check out the new website at www.backtable.com. Very easy to remember. We have recently renovated and are really proud of all the content and new features that we've added. Check it out. It's a work in progress, so if you have any feedback, please let us know. Also at this time, I'd like to thank our sponsor, GI Supply. The Renova RP Paracentesis Management System by GI Supply offers a new option for your patients with recurrent ascites. This unique approach puts the focus on patient and staff satisfaction, providing a closed system alternative to vacuum bottles and wall suction that is fast and gentle. Learn more about Renova by visiting www.rethinkparas.com. For those interested, I will post a link to this in the show notes. Our guest today is Dr. Rajiv Suri. Our topic will be the procedure paracentesis, as I mentioned. Paras are one of those procedures to me that fall into this interesting category, at least for my practice. For me, I suspect that many of interventional radiologists, we do this procedure all the time, but because the procedure is so technically straightforward, we don't dedicate a lot of bandwidth to this procedure. And so that's why I thought we might benefit from a a little bit more of an in-depth discussion of a very, very common procedure that maybe we kind of flies under the radar. With that out of the way, uh, Dr. Suri, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So uh, Rajiv, will you go ahead and just introduce yourself to um, the Backtable uh, audience and tell us a little bit about yourself, your practice, and where you're located? Okay. Uh, So first, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Aaron, for inviting me to do this podcast. I'm an interventional radiologist practicing in San Antonio since 2004. After completing my residency and fellowship training in Los Angeles, I'm currently uh, a professor and vice chair of the Department of Radiology at UT Health San Antonio. San Antonio, or rather South Texas, is a major belt for liver disease. Uh, Decomposite cirrhosis, portal hypertension is a good part of our practice. We cover the full gamut of interventional treatment for paracentesis, uh, for varieties from paracentesis, uh, TIPS, and tunnel catheters, peritoneal venous shunts. And that's what we are trying to do today to kind of for the topic today, kind of discuss how we can manage ascites, what we have done in our practice to convert that into kind of a, a clinic model so that we can evaluate these patients and give them the best option going forward and sharing our experience with you all. So let's start with uh, the candidate. So like the portal hypertension uh, patient in your practice, uh, a patient with uh, newly developed and and I, I think for the topic of this, we should just go ahead and exclude malignant ascites. So we'll be talking primarily about portal hypertension, but we might get into that a little bit. 
but just for the beginning, we'll just start with uh, portal hypertension. How do these patients um, present to you guys and get funneled into the either the IR clinic or kind of the IR workflow? So that could be a mix. So these are patients either newly diagnosed with uh, SIDs, which could be either, as I said, benign or malignant, which we don't know, or they are patients who have known SIDs and now presenting with abdominal pain, fever, kind of the suspicion for bacterial peritonitis. And then obviously recurrent patients having SIDs causing some sort of a breathing problem, either shortness of breath because of elevation of the diaphragm. So our role gets involved in these both for the diagnostic and therapeutic portions of things, especially for SBP diagnostic and then for new patients, both diagnostic and therapeutic. So that's how we get involved in this picture. We, the referrals come from kind of a full gamut of people from ED, from hepatology, from the hospitalists, uh, from the surgeons, and then obviously primary care physicians. And these would then either initially come to our procedural service for paracentesis, but then from there, as we evaluate these patients for future treatments, you know, be it TIPS or something else, they would then get transferred to our clinic from that point on if they fit the criteria for our TIPS. So, or, or if they needed a current paracentesis, they will continue with the, with the paracentesis model from there. Sure. Sure. So it seems like you guys get a lot of referrals and I think this, that this mirrors a lot of interventional radiologist practice. It's inpatients, it's outpatients, it's surgeons, it's hospitalists. Um, it seems like paracentesis just, it's a procedure that has a way to flow to interventional radiology in, in your hospital system. Are there any other physicians or um, physician extenders, which do the same procedure or is IR the the person who kind of bears the 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 main bulk of handling uh, paras? I would say IR uh, is the main person, main, uh, people bring the bulk of the procedures. ED does some and these patients show, uh, present to the ED, but we actually work with the ED where these patients who come with large volume ascites are coming in and holding up an ED bed or staying in the ED for a long time. So we set up uh, parameters, these patients are now if they come to the ED, they will get an appointment the next day in our SIDs clinic, and they can come straight there so that they're not clogging up the ED services that is there. The same time for other services that do that, there is a procedural team in medicine that does some, obviously maybe less than 5% of paracentes in the hospital. Now within IR, we have a nurse practitioner who helps with our inpatient consult service, who also helps with the paracentesis and thoracentesis. So apart from IR, I would say less than 5% done by anybody else. Okay, that's fair. And you, you kind of already touched on something that I'd, I'd like to dig into, but can you talk a little bit about some of those ER parameters that you guys have that, that at least just from, from your brief description of it, sounds like it, it helps with both ER and IR workflow? Yeah, so two things. One, if the patient has a large volume of SIDs and is symptomatic due to respiratory distress, those patients, and they cannot be, cannot wait till the next day, those patients the ED will deal with, or any of those patients with SIDs but not presenting with symptoms of bacterial peritonitis, which could be either spontaneous or secondary, those are the ones ED would get involved with. But any patient that can be discharged and can, can wait till the next day, they automatically have a setup. We have uh, an outpatient clinic where we have slots available for paracentesis every day. And so these patients will automatically be just scheduled to show up the next day to our paracentesis clinic to do the procedure because uh, as we, as you all know, we hardly ever require these patients to have 
any prior blood tests. So these patients can just show up directly to our clinic and we get the procedure done. So that also segues nicely into uh, the next topic, which would be the you're basically your pre-procedural evaluation or your pre-procedural uh, checklist of things that you need or require from your patients uh, prior to doing a paracentesis. So can we talk a little bit about either lab values or lab tests that you have to have ordered or any kind of imaging that you need ordered before you uh, do, do or see a patient in the paracentesis kind of clinic? Imaging-wise, no imaging is needed. Uh, patient has to be, obviously, there's some documentation from the ED or the provider who saw the patient that they at least on examination felt the fluid waiver, something that was concerning for, for SIDs. As far as blood tests are concerned, we are not requiring um, any labs, be it platelets or, or INR, to be checked in these patients. I know the SIR 2019 guidelines that came out kind of differentiated the two, you know, regular versus chronic liver disease patients. And at least for our population, though most of those patients are chronic liver disease, there are still some patients with suspect malignant ascites. So none of these patients currently get any labs. Uh, the only time somebody might get an INR would be a patient who's on full dose uh, anticoagulation. They may get an INR just for evaluation purposes, but we are we generally don't change our management based on what the INR and platelets are. Okay. And that was kind of my, my next question is that I think there's always situations where, or there's patient-specific circumstances that that do warrant, you know, kind of a break from your typical protocol. But I, I think something that does come up very often are patients who are being anticoagulated. It sounds like sometimes you may draw an INR, sometimes not. Are there any medications that you guys ask to be held uh, as far as anticoagulants uh, prior to doing the procedure? So uh, again, in our practice, none patients can continue everything. So if they're in patients, if they're on heparin or or Lovenox, uh, no stoppage. If they're on uh, any direct thrombin inhibitors, again, we do not stop them. If they're on any factor 10 inhibitors like Xeralto, Eliquis, or any platelet inhibitors like Berlenta or Plavix, no, we do not stop any of those medications. We would proceed uh, with the procedure because the risk is so low for bleeds in these patients. And at least the way we do our procedures with ultrasound guidance, the risk is, is really minimal. Now, there is some role in literature for patients who have you know, glycoprotein 2B3 inhibitors, but that, that number of that patient volume is so low. And note, some SIR guidelines have talked about waiting four to six hours in those patients. But again, we hardly get to see patients with that. So sure. that's never been a major issue for us. How about patients, and I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, but there, occasionally you do run into a patient who's already had labs drawn. And they have, you know, a lot of patients with liver failure fall into this portal hypertension category, and they have INRs at three, four, six, seven. Do you guys, d does that then change your management for a patient you might not have drawn labs on, but you already have some pre-existing labs where you have major thrombocytopenia, elevated INR that then you think, oh, maybe, I, or does it give you any pause or is it just, you know, it's slightly elevated risk of bleeding and it's business as usual? If we had labs drawn on these patients and the INR was any number, even if it was 10, mm -hmm. we would still proceed. Gotcha. INR does not affect our treatment, our pattern. Now, if somebody had platelets drawn and the platelets are below 20,000, we would pause. So it depends again at that time. If they are severe ascites and they are in our clinic at that time, we would probably still proceed. If they're an inpatient in that category, I would probably say we might consider doing platelet transfusions, but I think 
we have pushed the limit even beyond what the SIR guidelines are. We really do not check INR and platelets or even modify that on any basis in cirrhotic patients. Sure, now, sure. patients who are regular patients who are not cirrhotics, there it could be slightly different. Okay. All right. Well, not, not to dwell on, on the outlier situation too much. Can we talk a little bit about how you do your paracentesis? And I know it's not an extremely complicated procedure, but we do actually have a fair number of medical students and uh, trainees who uh, listen to the podcast. So if you could just go through briefly um, how you do your para, and then maybe also we can get in a little bit more to the technical components, like you know, if you've tried different trays or different needles that you find work uh, better or worse. Yeah. So for us, these patients would come to, obviously, as proof anything else, we will consent these patients prior to the procedure. All these patients, because they involve uh, fluid uh, removal, do, at least in our practice, get a preset of vitals before they come in. They, we will move them onto the procedure suite. Sometimes we would do them in a side room in our, in our holding room area. We will check with the help of ultrasound which side has the biggest pocket. I know there's some literature out there. Left is better than right. For us, we probably go with the side with the biggest pocket because you can see where we are. We definitely never do midline. Most of our access points will generally be in the left lateral or the right, uh, almost in the mid-axillary line or entry-axillary line, kind of in that area. Sure. Trying to be lateral to where the rectus muscle would be. We would prep that area mostly with chloroprep. We use a lidocaine without epinephrine, maybe 5 to 10, 10 cc's. We definitely really like to numb the tract all the way down up to uh, the level of the peritoneum. We use the 5 French uh, one-step needle at that point. This is either made by Merit or, or Cook. Merit has got the thing called a synthesis catheter. Cook has got a UE catheter. We generally use the Merit more often than the Cook system. We like to go with a, uh, you know, at least a 45 degree angle. We also, once we get, we are trying to advance the needle in, uh, at least the, the paracentesis uh, one step needle in, we will advance at a 45 degree angle. And then I would probably pull the skin down or laterally or medially just to try to create a Z, uh, uh, Z pattern. So at least I can decrease the risk of uh, leakage. But mostly in our practice, we've seen 45 degree angulation actually works very well. Get the needle all the way into the uh, acidic fluid, advance the catheter, keeping the needle where it is. And at that point of time, in our practice, again, I know you talked to the sponsors earlier, we actually use Renova a lot. 60 to 70% of our practice involves using the Renova uh, system to help drain the fluid out. Well, so actually, there are a couple of things there that I wanted to dig into before we get uh, to what you use for the actual drainage portion. But can you can you uh, describe for people who may not be familiar with it what you meant for Z pattern as you're pulling the skin down and advancing the needle? I think some people might gloss over that if they don't know uh, what that what that is kind of alluding to. Sure, I understand that. So so the the concept is that if you went straight into the peritoneal cavity at a ninety degree angle to the skin, like perpendicular, as you're pulling the needle out after a paracentesis, the fluid will leak along the track. So. So the recommended thing is that if you went through the, through the soft tissue or the subcutaneous tissues in a Z pattern, so that means going forward slightly back and then going forward again, so almost like a Z, you are creating a trap door so that would prevent fluid from leaking out along the tract. So if you went access the, the subcutaneous soft tissues at a 45 degree angle, and then you pull the skin down, say caudally towards the, towards the feet, you are theoretically creating that 
the backward bend of the Z at that time as you advance the needle into the peritoneal cavity. And then obviously when you release the, uh, the skin pressure or the tag, the, what you pull down, uh, the catheter goes into the belly, but uh, into the peritoneal cavity, but it's created a Z along the soft tissue tract. Right. And it's a nice little maneuver to reduce the incidence of, of peritoneal or ascites leakage after the procedure. Can you also talk about whether or not you use direct sonographic guidance versus what I think some people would maybe describe as intermittent sonographic guidance? Like I think some, I think there's kind of two camps in that some people will use ultrasound prepped on the field and watch, uh, you know, visualize their numbing needle and also their access needle into the peritoneal cavity. And then some people, and, and actually I've kind of moved to this practice myself, I usually check, and if the pocket is large enough, I'll usually mark an area with a little pin or like the, the back of a, a needle just to create a little skin indention. And then I'll go in, not, I mean, I guess you could say going in blind, but you know, I've already marked the area and, and then I just access, I aspirate as I'm going in. And then once I pop through, then I just, you know, thread the catheter off. Um, do you guys do direct or intermittent ultrasound guidance? I would say 90% of, of a practice is uh, direct ultrasound guidance. Less than 10% would be intermittent ultrasound guidance. And that depends when you have a resident or fellow scrubbed in versus a faculty doing a case alone. Sure, so, sure. Uh, um, at least when I have direct ultrasound guidance, it is resident or fellow proof. At least make sure they are seeing it all the time. They know where we're going in. Anytime there's moderate ascites and there's a concern that some bowel loops might float in and out of my field of view, I would definitely use a continuous ultrasound guidance, but intermittent, if there's large volume of ascites, and in that case, I would probably, as you said, correctly, correct, just mark it with the back of a needle or, or a pen or something, and then just yeah. aim straight into it. We do routinely, every time we're assessing our access tract, we will check for the, in, the infraepigastric artery or sometimes mm -hmm. uh, even the circumflex iliac artery for in the soft tissue, just to make sure that is not, there's no Doppler signal. So every patient this kind of default will get the Doppler evaluation just to make sure. Now, routinely, if you go at the and the anterior axillary line, you, you the blood vessel should not be there. But sometimes, uh, when patients are very obese, the whole panis can move to one side or the other, and that can disorient way that where those vessels are. So we definitely always check for that. Yeah, and I think that's a good point also to drill down on is that. It's usually not your, you know, your 70 kilogram man where you have trouble identifying like vascular landmarks, but it's someone, you know, a morbidly obese patient where the panis has kind of shifted everything. They're kind of laying cockeyed in the bed. And I, I think there is a lot of value in making sure that you identify your vessels because so often, or at least in my experience, the, the ultrasound techs want to show you, they're like, oh, this is, this is the big, nice pocket that you're looking at. But sometimes you really have to decrease the depth to get, you know, you're really only interested in the first, you know, few centimeters in that soft tissue to, to see if there's any intervening vessels between you and the peritoneal cavity. Totally agree. So at this time, I'd like to thank our sponsor, GI Supply. GI Supply's Renova Pump is an innovative alternative to traditional methods for paracentesis. The portability allows drains to be performed virtually anywhere, while the fully adjustable speed means each patient can have a procedure tailored for their comfort. Learn more about how Renova has benefited providers and patients by downloading the latest case study at www.rethinkparas.com. And like I said earlier, I'll post a link of this to in the show notes. The other thing that I think you had mentioned that we can now kind of get to, going back to the disease stitch and, and leakage, how often do you guys ever place any glue or stitches for, you know, after the catheter's out? So again, very uncommon. It's mm -hmm. only... Once I do the procedure, 
if because uh, the patients once the fluid is taken the cath is taken out they do get a set of vitals and then they leave i'll talk about that separately too if you have a question about that but again if we see leakage of fluid we might do glue at that time we rarely ever put a stitch but mostly for us an opsite or or even simple band-aid works but sometimes these patients especially patients who keep coming back again and again they can develop that leakage in that case we do use glue in those cases Sure. Yeah, I think that I, I agree. That's been my experience. It's the exception rather than the rule and, and almost never a stitch. But every now and then I do see somebody and they have a stitch in and I think, well, some some people must be doing it. The other thing I was going to ask is when when you're pulling off the fluid and we get and we can get to what drainage um, mechanisms you use. But also, do you stay or is there an MD who stays with the patient the whole time or are you guys allowed in your practice to uh, put the catheter in, begin drainage, and then either come back for catheter removal or or one of the nurses or ultrasound techs allowed to remove the the uh, the UE catheter or, or whatever catheter you use. So in our practice, the MD is there from the start of the procedure, the numbing till the placement of the uh, of the synthesis catheter and connection to the drainage system. Thereafter, the nurses handle everything. I move on to my next patient. They will complete the drainage and uh, they will at that point once the catheter the drainage is done they will pull the catheter out at that time similar and and we mentioned earlier uh, what you do after like uh, what do you use to hook up to connect to suction you know I know some people use wall suction some people use vacuum bottles some people use a combination of the two so in our practice if there's a small amount of ascites you know you can generally look at an ascites get a feel that yeah it's going to be at least two liters three liters in those cases where I feel it's a small, small amount, we generally will use a vacutainer bottle. Uh, we used to use wall suction, but the challenge we used to have was that you really had to keep cranking it up and down regularly because it would really start sucking the, the bowel very close to, to your catheter, especially in the small amount of, a small to moderate amount of fluid. So we literally moved away from wall suction at this time. So we use for those two to three liter concerns, we'd probably use the, the bottles. But again, 80% of our practice has moved to using the Renova pump. So for Renova, it's a very simple system. It is, it can easily be managed by a nurse. We connect the catheter from the, from the drainage, from the synthesis catheter, the catheter that goes to the pump. And you can, and each of the bags that is out there is 1.6 liter capacity. You can adjust how quickly or slowly you want to get the fluid taken out. Each bag, 1.6 liters, fills in roughly around three minutes. So patients could have a 15 or 18 liter, 20 liter paracentesis in half an hour and go home. Obviously, we have a nurse uh, out there, so they will be checking the patient. We don't routinely monitor vitals during the procedure, but if the patient was feeling symptomatic, if there was any concern symptomatic, they would probably they would check the vitals at that time. Sure. Uh, but we can we definitely, we can adjust how quickly or slowly you're pulling the fluid out for the Renova system. For sure. And do you guys have a specific endpoint in terms of the volume uh, or the amount that you'll remove? Our endpoint is, is try to completely dry it out completely. We have gone as high as 25 liters. I think I've rarely gone above 25. Mostly it's dry by that time. We obviously do use albumin per protocol and the nurses are aware of the protocol so they don't have to keep calling me every time it reaches a particular number. And, uh, but again, so we, we, we take out the, all the fluid as much as possible. Okay. 
And will you tell us the albumin protocol without giving away, you know, all the trade secrets of UTC and Antonio? <laughs> there are no trade secrets. Right, 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 right. This is, this is published guidelines. So for us, again, per published guidelines, and no albumin is given for the first five liters of fluid taken out. The moment the drainage starts going above five liters, our protocol dominantly has been to give, you know, the six to eight grams of albumin per liter removed. So we generally use 25% albumin. So to give an idea, 100 ml of a 25% albumin will have 25 grams. So if you took out, if you took out like four liters, that's roughly 24 grams. So you can give 100 ml for every four liters removed or something like that. So, so, right. so we, that's our protocol and the nurses will keep checking that. Now, because uh, we have the Renova system and that does take fluid out very quickly. So the nurses will have albumin ready. So the moment they see the uh, fluid going close to five liters, they will at that time go ahead and connect the album at the same time because you could quickly cross over to, uh, to going to eight liters or nine liters by the time the first fluid is gone. In. Sure. Have you noticed any difference in the, in the rate that you can pull fluid um, using any of the different catheters or needles? So in our practice, we always just use the five French system. Mm -hmm. uh, Way back, we had experimented with the eight French catheter system to place it out there. We were just noticing more, even if we try to use the Z technique, we we're just noticing more fluid leakage, especially patients complaining when they would go home, they would have right. no fluid leakages. So we moved away from the eight liters, the eight French system. And we've not had any challenges as far as flow rates are concerned between the five French, the eight French. Yes, the eight French probably pulls fluid faster, but we only used to compare eight French with our the bottles at that time. We've never tried eight French with Renova, so I would not I could not especially uh, talk about that. But with the five French, if you can take out one point six liters in three minutes most of the time, that's a pretty fast flow for us. Sure, sure, agreed. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but following the paracentesis, so at this point the the patient's dry or as dry as they're going to be, the catheter is out. Are there any uh, post-procedural vitals or anything that happens as far as recovery time before? Is there anything that, that happens between the end of the procedure, like sterile bandages getting applied and the patient going home? Just one set of vitals. We just do it while the patient's supine. We do not do any postures or anything. One set of vitals. If they look okay, uh, patient goes home. No further recovery needed at that time. That's great. Uh, these patients also are set based on these patients who come to a CIDES clinic regularly. Once we have an established pattern that they, it takes them roughly 10 uh, days to refill their fluid, they will be set up on a recurrent seven or 10 day follow-up for getting their fluid removed. If the patient gets the fluid, if they get more symptomatic earlier, they can always call our schedulers and come in earlier, but they are set up on a set schedule. So the moment they leave, they all know when they're coming in next for they're getting the fluid removed. Gotcha. Gotcha. One thing that I meant to ask from a, a slightly earlier uh, point that you had made, in y'all's practice, have, is there really any difference? I think sometimes we get referrals for uh, therapeutic and diagnostic paracentesis. From my perspective, what I've just done is I treat all paracentesis consults the same and that, you know, I, I pretty much try and remove all the fluid if possible. And I don't really make a big distinction between diagnostic and therapeutic. Is that similar to what you guys do? Yeah, we uh, agree. It's been, uh, even if it's a diagnostic therapeutic, we still take out the maximum fluid we can. Now that we have, sometimes you might send like a 60 cc syringe, but our lab now even accepts the, the bags that come with the pump. So we can just send the bag itself for analysis. So you don't have to take a separate syringe and have a concern about splashing and things of that sort. 
just send them the bag and they can do whatever analysis they want to do from that. Oh, that's great. That's great. So now I think it's as good as any to t- take a left turn kind of a- away from the actual procedure and talk about the ways that you kind of manage those patients who are coming back every seven to 10 days for recurrent paracentesis in terms of, of conversations regarding different procedures that may be a good fit. Are you guys involved in medication adjustments or, or you know, maybe referral to the hepatologist or sometimes nephrology services for medication adjustments and in terms of trying to dial in that ascites and that portal hypertension management? So we directly do not get involved with their sodium restriction and diuretic management, but we do, anytime we see these patients, we will in our follow-up note, in our plan for the paracentesis, do a recommendation to the hepatologist to make sure they're optimizing the salt restriction. So that's kind of the first thing you've got to do, salt restriction to, you know, mm-hmm. less than 88 millimoles a day or like, what, 2,000 grams a day of salt and then of sodium restriction. And then uh, the diuretics, obviously, they will start them spironolactone first and then move on to furosemide later and they'll maximize that dose. So, so that is something that, the, that the, generally the hepatologist or the primary physician would take care of that. But obviously, if they are continuing to recur after that, then they fall into our refractory ascites uh, management thing. Now, we will, at that point, once these patients are coming back for recurrent fluid aspiration, we will obviously assess them regularly. Their hepatologists will have sent labs on them on a routine basis. So we do check their MELD score. Mm-hmm. So if their MELD score, and we use MELD more often than MELD sodium currently for ascites, so, and based on published data from our institution only, we use a melt cutoff of 18. Uh, so 18 or less, uh, we will proceed with, uh, consider proceeding with the TIPS evaluation. That would mean, obviously, you know, the TIPS evaluation to see what the hepatic vein and the portal venous system and everything look like and proceed the TIPS accordingly after a discussion with the patient in the clinic. If the melt is more than 18, in our practice, we still continue with the refractory, with the paracentesis regularly on these patients. We only have considered, uh, Denver shunts in patients who just cannot keep coming back for for fluid aspirations. Denver shunts mm-hmm. has not been a big part of our practice just because the complications that we've seen have been many, much, much more in, in this patient population. So malignant ascites, definitely we've, we've used Denver shunts, but in this uh, patient population, cirrhotics, not much. Gotcha. Gotcha. Going back a little bit to those medication adjustments, in, in my practice, and I think many interventional radiology practices, I, I think some people feel comfortable making some adjustments to diuretics or recommendations on you know, sodium restriction. But sometimes I even find that because you're seeing these patients so often that a referral, a specific referral back to their hepatologist or PCP for diuretic management can sometimes prompt that PCP or the hepatologist to kind of, you know, adjust that clinic visit for just that thing. And so for me, I I don't feel particularly comfortable making those adjustments. And so I found that like a referral back to the hepatologist in specifically saying, hey, can you take a look at the medication adjustment? There might be some room here to to move the needle, I I think has been very helpful. And it's been well received from our referring docs. I don't know if you guys have had a similar experience. I I totally agree in that because just Increasing the dose of a diuretic by ourselves is not the answer because you also have to assess what the serum sodiums are looking like in these patients. Right. If below 125, how do you manage that? You need to be assessing how much urine sodium is coming out, the difference between the serum sodium and the urine sodium. So there's several factors that as you adjust these diuretics, who's responsible at that time as the potassium keeps going up. So we definitely do recommend, but 
I have not, we have, our practice has not been involved with any of those diuretic direct maintenance. Sure. Because it's, just, it's more different from just changing a dose. Sure, sure. In regards to conversations you have about tips or, or dips, however you like to, to think about it, in terms of, of that, do you guys have a specific uh, contact point where you actually see them in clinic or at least in my practice, I'm, I'm seeing these patients so often just while I'm doing the paracentesis procedure, oftentimes I'll test the waters with them because some patients don't want it. I mean, I've run into that plenty for one reason or another, like that just seems like a bridge too far, a procedure too invasive. But oftentimes I'll test the water with small conversations. And then if they sound like it's something they would be amenable to, then actually I will plug them into the IR clinic and we'll, and we'll go the full gamut. Is, is that something similar to what you guys are doing? Yes, actually, that's very true because when you are with them, by the time you're doing the presentation, you actually, when these patients keep coming back, you develop a wonderful relationship with them. Mm -hmm. So, and again, so the way our clinics are set up, it might not be the same intervention radiologists interacting with them every time, but you have a relationship set up with them. So we've actually had a lot of discussion with these patients about future procedures, tips and everything while we actually doing the procedure. So, so that has helped us get, get them primed for a possible procedure in the future. Uh, obviously, if we decide that TIPS is needed, we will contact the hepatologist. Uh, some of these patients, uh, depending on how they are, uh, our hepatologists work very closely with the transplant service. So they will then get plugged in into a transplant evaluation. If they've not already been doing that, get to us a clinic for the evaluation and go from there. Sure. So Rajiv, looking uh, forward, do you see anything interesting happening in terms of y'all's practice and, and things that you guys would like to see as far as like your portal hypertension management and and maybe also including paracentesis in there and that in some anything like uh, y'all's five or 10 year plan as far as like things that are exciting, which either you're doing with protocols, which you're uh, maybe doing with your clinics or anything that's like coming down the pipe? So uh, some of the changes we already incorporated, some of the changes that are coming down the pipeline is to have more of these slots available. So we uh, have a, now a dedicated nurse practitioner for some of these procedures. Uh, on our outpatient basis. Obviously, we also have uh, our interventional radiologists uh, who do those, but the way we've set it up is that we've set up two days in a week. Currently, it's one day a week, but two days in a week. That's aim that patients can, by default, show up there and get their, the procedure done and go home. It's Patients love that option versus trying to, and if they know that they can just come in when they want to, that's really helped. Apart from that, I, I think just a better uh, way to market this to the hospital system this is something else we're working on. You know, it's easy to say, tell the hospital, yes, you are getting these patients to the CITES clinic. But just imagine the time the patient saved not sitting in the ED, the time the ED physician didn't have to uh, spend on evaluating the patient, patient. All that actually adds revenue to the hospital system. So that's something we are working on in the marketing. I think try to understand that, you know, it might look like you are using up these slots for paracentesis. But in the long run, it does it does help the hospital in a in lo a lot. Absolutely, I think there's. I mean, it's it, now the job is sometimes not only just doing a good job and taking really good care of your patients, but also showing like the hospital systems or whatever healthcare system you belong to the value add for setting up a, a streamlined uh, management system where you know patient care and you know the business side of of hospitals are aligned. So yeah, that's that's becoming more and more part of the job these days when we're trying to you know either show your worth or, or, you know, prove how much you're worth. So that's great that you guys are heading that. As, as a teaching uh, facility, do you have any uh, papers or, or management uh, protocols or, or anything that's any 
papers or, or research projects that you kind of direct some of the residents, fellows, or medical students to that, like when you're talking about portal hypertension management, where it's like, oh, this is a great paper, check this out, or these are the AASLD guidelines, go check this website out. Yeah, definitely. The the ASLD 20, 2012 guidelines that came in 2013, I don't think so they've got an update on that yet, but those are wonderful. They really cover SIDs and SIDs management very well. That definitely, we definitely tell all our um, trainees to make sure that they are aware of that. That's something required reading. SIR, the, the 2019 coagulation guidelines, not just for SIDs, but for everything else, just to know what to stop, what not to stop, when to stop. That helps. There's a great article by Martin, uh, Luis Martin from 212 in seminars of International for Denver Chance. Really goes a lot of details into, you know, not that we do a lot of these, but it's complications. How do you how do you manage that? How do you kind of clean out a, a clogged vest uh, cath or something? So so definitely that is there. So those are some of the articles I recommend reading this. Actually, they're really talking about the fact that in the next uh, decade, they're expecting uh, SIDs to be close to a two point uh, 8 billion market with all these new things coming in the market from, I know somebody came and talked to us recently from this company, Sequinum Medical, the alpha mm -hmm. pump where you can have the catheter and the peritoneum and the other catheter connected via pump into, uh, into the urinary bladder. So those are some things coming down the pipeline. I know some of our oncologists have talked about this uh, totally medication remove app for, mm -hmm. uh, for a malignancy. So, so those are some exciting things coming down the pipeline for this. Uh, so look forward to some of those. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Rajiv, anything that, any stone left unturned, anything else that we didn't touch on that uh, you think is worthwhile? I think we covered uh, a lot of the things out there. I guess the only challenge sometimes that most of the societies that we see is benign or what we call related to portal hypertension. Malignant societies is similarly in our practice, we do see less than 10 to 15%, 10% of patients of those our guidelines still remain the same, how much fluid we take out, how we do the procedure and everything. So the guidelines still remain almost the same for those two. Sure. Thanks, Aaron. And Chris, this is something, what you guys are doing is, is great. And I think IR really needs something like this. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. It was awesome. To our audience, thank you guys for listening. We covered a good topic today. I think it was fun to take a, a more in-depth look at something that's probably part of our day-to-day our -day practice, but we don't spend too much time thinking about and I think there's a lot of variations in, in regional practices and not to say that one way is better than the other, but I hope that we've given you like kind of a broad look at paracentesis and for those interested, especially trainees, uh, a, a way to push forward and maybe some things incorporate into your own practice. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, but want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it second if you're really getting value from these podcasts please go to itunes and leave us a short written review this helps us in so many different ways plus we love getting the feedback that wraps things up we'll see you next time on the back table podcast